as you saw there, if you uh, have your Bible, join with me in the book of Ruth there in the Old Testament. We're going to be launching today in our study in the book of Ruth. It's one of two books that are um, named after a woman in the Bible. Does anybody know the other one? Oh, good job. Yeah, Esther is the other one. Uh, as we're looking at this, this is basically going to be, I think, a beautiful story, but it's also kind of like a romantic movie. So gentlemen, bring your wives or your girlfriends back next week and let them, uh, let them behold this and take some lessons, gentlemen, on when we get to Boaz a little bit later on. But my hope is that it's, it's, this is a story that's intended really to be read in, in a sitting, to be able to, to take it all in. That's how a Jewish family, if you were growing up in that home, you would, you'd just sit and, and dad would probably sit down with his family and he would go through this story with them. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to take this kind of episodic, we're going to take a look at this uh, a chapter uh, a week, and we're going to sit a little bit longer in these chapters just to be able to see what's going on. And so this will be one of the few times where as your pastor, I'm going to ask you not to read ahead um, and not read next week's lesson because I want you to feel the tension uh, of, of how those who were first hearing this story, how they would have felt during this and what they were experiencing and what they would have understood with it. And so some of you already know the end of the story, so as best as you can, uh, try to forget that and just come to it uh, as, as just uh, open and as ready as you possibly can to be able just simply to hear this story maybe with fresh ears and see it with fresh eyes uh, here this morning. Because if you don't, you could do what my mom does. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. I think you're watching. Um, she, I don't know if any of you do this. You ever take a book that you're going to read and you go to the end of the book and you read like the last three pages? It's, it's, it's heresy. It's wrong. It's just, just something you don't do. I love you, mom. But mom will do that. She'll, she'll take a book. She'll read like the last three pages. She wants to know, is it going to have a happy ending? Is it going to be a sad ending? Do I want to invest my time in this? And if it's not happy, she'll just discard the thing. And so she always reads the end of the book. Don't do that. Don't read the end of the book because you're going to lose, I believe, the, uh, the intensity and the the message of the story as we go through this each week by week. But if you have your Bible, let's look at the first five verses, and then we'll pray together. It says, now it came about in the day when the judges governed. Oh, this, you're like, this is going to be a long one. No, it's not. Uh, before, before I continue, this is one of those times where I know a lot of times we have our, 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 our Bibles on our phones, which is a great resource, or you, you have the screen behind me. For this study, if you're going to be with us, I would just encourage you, and bring, bring, bring a hard copy because I want you to just to mark it up. Because there are going to be certain things, hopefully, as we kind of journey through, that hopefully you're underlining, you're circling, maybe writing in the margins of your Bible that you can come back to later. Because there's just a, a, so much here that we don't get in the year 2022, when this was written probably around... Uh, well, it took place probably anywhere from 1250 to 1000 BC. And so there's just some things that are foreign to us that we, we may just not quite understand. And so I hope that you'll, you'll just mark your Bible up with uh, different notes and things that we're able to glean from this study. So we'll begin again. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and Ephorites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now, they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I'm asking that this morning, 
that we would not be blind to be able to just to see you and your truth and just your presence in this place among this group in this time this morning. And where you're sitting, would you just pray for yourself right now? Would you just ask that God would help you to see his faithfulness, that God would help you to see his loyalty and his kindness in this text today? And if you'd be so kind, would you pray for me that I'll be a help to you this morning? Well, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like any good story, a story is going to have certain aspects to it. There's going to be a prologue, there's going to be acts, and there's going to be scenes. And so to begin with, we're going to look at this prologue here in the first six verses. And in the prologue, you basically get the setting of the scene, of the story, of what's going on. And there's a few key things that you see in the first couple of verses. One, it says, when the judges governed. Now, those of you that have have your Bible with you or on the app, you know that the book of Judges is just the book right before the book of Ruth. And this was a time period that, again, was about 1200 to 1020 BC. And the time of the Judges is kind of determined by the, the death of Joshua. You may remember Moses led the people out of Egypt. And then when Moses died before leading the people into the promised land, that Joshua took the reins of leadership and he actually led the people of Israel into the promised land. But when Joshua died, that started the beginning of the time of Judges. And until the coronation of King Saul, that was the end of the time of the Judges. And so you have this, this period here that oftentimes we don't read and study because if you've read through the book of Judges, you know that it is dark and it's like the dark ages of, 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 a, of a book of Scripture. It is a, it's a hard read. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult scene of seeing the people of God love God, worship God, be all about God, and then they begin to drift away subtly. They begin to fall away from the things of God and the teachings of God and then they cry out for deliverance. God delivers them through a judge, and they worship God. They love God, and they keep going through this cycle during the course of the book of Judges. And this is when Ruth takes place, right in the middle of when there's just this upheaval of, of either great love for the Lord or just a distancing of oneself from the Lord. And so when we get to this, uh, in fact, you kind of get an idea of what the book of Judges is about. If, if you just want to turn one page over or just look at the last verse of the book of Judges, it just kind of encapsulates what the book of Judges is all about. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds familiar at times, doesn't it? People wanting to do just what they want to do. Moral relativism is rampant. There are no absolutes. I will determine who I am and what I am, and no one can tell me otherwise. I will do what I want to do because I am the arbiter of truth. And that's just not the case. There is one God, the God of life, and the God of justice, and the God that knows what is right and what is wrong, and we want to hear his word. And we're going to see that there comes a point where a family, where a man with his family is wanting to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes, and uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult scene. So this is the time of the judges, but there's also a famine taking place, which is interesting because they, this family, they are from Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread, and they have no bread. They have no food. And so they sojourn, and they go to a place called Moab. Now for us, again, in 2022, we read this and we go, oh, well, he heard there was some food there, and so he got his family, and they just kind of hiked their way over to Moab to the next you know, city over, uh, next county, and they decided to get some food to take care of your family who wouldn't take care of your family. But what we don't sometimes realize is that Moab is one of those countries that 
for a Jewish person who was sitting down hearing this story being told to them by maybe a parent, if they heard that this family was going through a famine and then the dad said, we're going to go, when he said we're going to Moab, people would have gasped hearing this because Moab was the place that you don't go. Moab and the Moabites were the people that you do not associate with because of a history of, of, uh, of just uh, conflict between these two, these two countries. And so you would want to avoid Moab. And even the, the origin of Moab, the, the, the beginning of Moab began with an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter in Genesis 19. I mean, it began just with sin and just with evil. And so what you have is you have a group of people that even as the, the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land, when they were finally about to enter into the promised land, there came a point where they were like, well, we could cut through Moab and we'll get there quicker. And they said, no, you can't come through our country. They wouldn't let them through. I mean, there was just this contention between the two. We also find in Numbers 25, and this is especially important in light of two Moabite women that we're about to be looking at, is that Moabite women, according to those who were of Israel, when they saw and heard of a Moabite woman, they thought seductress, immoral, idolater. Because you can read in Numbers 25 that there's a specific moment in time where Moabite women were coming into the camp of the Israelites and they were seducing them and they were making them fall into sexual immorality and they were also having them follow their pagan gods. And as a result, great consequence came upon that moment where 24,000 were struck down as a result of the consequence of that, of that sin. And so, again, for a Jewish family, reading this story just from the first few verses, this is already the setting and the tone of... Uh, <laughs> do you ever watch a Disney film? And like in the first five minutes, they kill the mom or the dad. That's kind of the tone that you're getting here, just like immediately, bad news. This is going to be a difficult situation that they're about to march into. And that's exactly what happens. And so whenever they get to, to Moab, you get the idea from the text in the Hebrew that they're just going to go there, get some food, hang out for a bit. But instead, in verse 2, it says they remain. They don't, they don't just go for a time. They go for a long time. So much so that it comes to a point where now what Naomi is about to experience, and she's kind of the key character throughout most of Ruth chapter 1, is that she's about to experience double bereavement. She's about to go through just a, a difficult, difficult time. And what you have is you have her husband dying in verse 3, and even in the way that it's written, it's kind of cold. Did you notice that in verse 3 through 5? There's just kind of this, and her husband Elimelech died. And she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. That would have been shocking. And then her children die in verse 5. It's just kind of this staccato of like, die, death, die, death. I mean, it's just cold, just, just the facts. And in a matter of just a little bit of time, we find that husband's dead, sons are dead. They marry these Moabite women, which again, well, that's a seductress, that's an idolater, that's an immoral person. And we also see that apparently they lived there for 10 years and there are no children, there are no grandchildren for Naomi. And so there's also the issue of infertility being dealt with for 10 years of no life is being produced within this family. So in three verses, just bam, 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 here's 10 years of your life. You ever been there? <laughs> Just bam, bam, bam. And you look up, it's like it's five years later, two years later, ten years later, and just so much life has happened, and yet so much of their life and hardship happened, and it's just in three verses, there's ten years of your life. 
how quickly it just kind of flies by and it goes. It's encapsulated just in the moment of what Naomi is feeling in verse 5. It says, it doesn't even say the, that Naomi was bereft. The author of the book of Ruth just says the woman was bereft. Like, it's just, it's just this difficulty of her two children dying and her husband dying. And so you have this picture that even though she has these daughter-in-laws that she's living life with, there's this picture of just being alone, of being isolated. You are a Jewish woman, and in that culture and that time, to not have a husband, let alone your sons, you are alone. Like you are no protection and no provision is your life at that point going forward. That's what you have for a hope and for a future. And you're an Israelite living in a foreign land. You're an Israelite living in a land that is antagonistic towards you and towards your God and towards your culture and towards your customs. That's where she's at in this moment. And for 10 years, this is kind of the experience that she has. And then in verse 6, you kind of get that moment in the film of where there's just a a hint, a subtle hint of of change. Look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return, you'll you'll notice the word return multiple times, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, the first time God is mentioned in this book, is the covenantal name of God because Lord is all capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So this is the name of Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. So the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. And so what we have is she went to Moab, now she's returning from Moab. At the beginning there was famine, now there is food. And we have the first mention of Yahweh. Things are beginning to shift, though subtly there is a shift. And sometimes we miss the subtlety of things, don't we? We want to see the big miracle moment. We want to have the Red Sea moment. We want to have the burning bush moment. We want to have the David and Goliath moment. But don't miss the subtleties of what God is doing in and around you and those that are around you as well. Like God, God is at work. He's, he hasn't forgotten you. So that's the prologue, but now let's look at the first act. The first act is really the, uh, the, the, the rest of this chapter. But we see this first scene. Look at verse, verse uh, 7. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And now our first dialogue. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord Yahweh deal kindly, if you're marking up your Bible, underline that, circle that, highlight that, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept, and they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people." What we have in this moment is we have the, the, the word of the title of our message. It's chesed. You want to say it with me, don't you? Chesed. It's, it's like you're trying to clear your throat. Chesed. That's, that's the word for today. Chesed. Chesed is, is just a Hebrew word that encapsulates so much within it that it's hard for us in our English language to really kind of, kind of grab it. Um, in verse 8, in my translation, in the New American Standard, when it says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, that's the word chesed. That's that Hebrew word. Yours may say something a little bit different in that moment. But I believe on the screen behind me, you're going to see just kind of an idea of some ideas of, of how you could also kind of 
take the idea, the word hesed, and look at it from different angles, different vantage points to try to grasp what it is that Naomi is saying in this moment. Hesed was this idea of covenantal loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, compassion. We also can, from, from study, you can find that it's expressive, that hesed is, is, is a type of emotion that's expressive of deep abiding loyalty and commitment. It's a motive, so there's emotion that is involved, like the heart is engaged, if you will, but it's more than that. It's an action. It's not just that I feel compassion for you. It's not that just I want to be loyal, it's I am loyal, and I'm going to demonstrate compassion towards you. There's an action behind it. It's performed generally for a situationally weaker person by a situationally more powerful person. And then ultimately, it's voluntary. It's a voluntary act of extraordinary mercy and generosity. Perhaps one of the best ways in which to maybe think about chesed is mercy. It's you're demonstrating this, this mercy. I also like the idea of loyalty, like you're just staying there. And it's this voluntary act. It's something that you didn't have to do, but you're choosing to do because of a great emotive quality that my heart is engaged, but it's more than that. I have the volition of my will to want to act. I want to do something for you. And you see that here when Naomi says in verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly, may the Lord hesed with you as you have hesed with me. When my husband died and when my sons died, you dealt kindly with me. You were loyal to me. You were hesed. There was compassion. There was mercy. There was gentleness. There was understanding. You walked through life with me. And some of you have had that in your life of where you've walked through difficulty and someone has been there. And it's in this moment where I think uh, Naomi is saying, I, I got to go back because this is not my home and, 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 and my family, they're, they're, they're gone, but so I got to go back. And then she begins to try to, to reason with them to, to, to not return. She begins to, to actually kind of give a pretty logical reason for them to not come back with her. Look at verse 11. It says, But Naomi said, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, 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 my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She, she literally is like a lawyer just laying out her case of, you don't need to come back. You don't need to come with me. You need to go back home. She's like, she says, I have no more sons. Even if I could get married, which I don't think that I am because I'm too old, and then by the time I have sons, they would be too old for you, and there's no guarantee that I'm even going to have a son. And the trump card that she brings down is that the hand of God is against me. And if you're going to be connected with me, the hand of God is going to be against you. If we're not careful, she's beginning to dabble into the realm of superstition. So she builds this airtight case. And she actually has kind of some interesting evidence for it. She's like, there was famine in Bethlehem. We went to Moab. Moab shouldn't have. My husband died. My sons died. Infertility. Uh, it's just, just, just this difficulty. Don't, don't stay with me. Go. Leave. And so now we have the choice. Look at verse 14. It says, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Now, this is an emotional moment for these women. And Orpah, yes, uh, that 
That's where Oprah got her name. They just spelled it wrong. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But note this, Ruth, underline it, circle it, highlight it, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah, she's, she's gone. And sometimes I've heard pastors look at this and go, man, Orpah, you didn't have that commitment. But, but I, I don't want to be too harsh on Orpah because she was doing one what Naomi told her to do. And she went back to that which was familiar to her. But the unfortunate thing is that when she went back to what was familiar to her, she went back to idolatry and she went back to a pagan land. And in this moment, Ruth sees in this moment, because I, I can just picture, I know it's not in the text, but as as Naomi says in verse 8, you've, you've dealt chesed with me, like we've lived life together. I could see them sitting around, if you will, the breakfast table, all of them in their grief and in their mourning, all of them wrestling with what's going on. And I can just imagine, because we're going to hear from Ruth in just a moment, talking about Yahweh, talking about the Lord God of Israel, that there had to be some, some, some Bible study lessons going around in that home of talking about the, the stories of Adam and Eve and talking about the stories of Father Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph going into the land of Egypt, being sold by his brothers and then being the great deliverer for the people of God through the famine in Egypt. And, and, then, and then the exodus of the people out of Egypt and the great works and wonders that God performed by, by getting them out of the exodus through the different plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and, and entering into the promised land and the walls of Jericho falling down. And again and again, they're, they're talking about Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And it's in that moment that Ruth, she makes her choice. It says that she clung to her. There's almost a, a sense of, of desperation and, again, chesed. Again, commitment, loyalty, faithfulness, an incredible picture of her. And then she begins to, to communicate. Look at verse 15. It says, Behold, this is Naomi speaking, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, note this, her gods. Naomi knew what she was going back to. That's familiar. She says, Return after your sister-in-law. Not the best evangelistic move in that moment, but we're going to let that slide. Verse 16, but Ruth said, listen to her, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord Yahweh do to me and worse, if anything but death, parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she, she said no more. In this moment, in these words, and I know this is something that people have used before in a, in a marriage ceremony, and if you have, that's fantastic, that's great, but, but this, is, this is between a, a, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, and the daughter-in-law is, is having this just impressive, uh, impressive communication of, again, loyalty and chesed and kindness and devotion, not just to Naomi, but to the God of Naomi. I've, I've heard the stories even in distancing yourself from the presence of God and the people of God, and specifically the land of God, so much of being in the presence of God for an Israelite at this time was the land that was promised to you to, to dwell there, to live there. And so what you have is, is Ruth is communicating abandonment of her father. Ruth is committing, communicating abandonment of her mother, her parents, of, of her country, of her gods, and expressing rather her commitment to Naomi and to God. When she uses, when the author uses the word, Ruth clung to her, it's the same thing that you read in Genesis chapter 2, 
when it speaks about how a, a man and a woman, when they become husband and wife, they are to uh, leave the, the, if you will, the apron strings of mom and dad, cut those off, and you cling to one another. There's this devotion that you have towards one another, that you are faithful, that you are loyal. And this is what Naomi, or excuse me, what Ruth is, is communicating. And so Naomi's logic and argument has been ineffective against Ruth because Ruth's faith defies human logic and practical wisdom. Ruth's faith defies human logic and practical wisdom. Sometimes people have been like, how can you believe in a God who allows this, that, or the other to happen? Bad things, difficult things. And I'll step back and I'll be like, I don't understand why this happened the way that it happened. And I could quote Isaiah and say his ways are not my ways and all that kind of stuff, but this is what I do know. I want to focus on what I do know, of what I do have a solid foundation on, is that I believe that I could think that God is distant from me, uh, uh, against me, is, is bringing hardship in my life, or I could look at the, the cross of Christ, and I could look at the empty tomb of Jesus, and I could say, if you think that, that human logic and, and practical wisdom are, are, are defying, uh, is, is Ruth's faith is defying these things, my faith defies the idea that there was a dead man who was alive, and my faith defies that though I was born into sin, I am, I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint in Christ. Do I still make mistakes? Yes, I do, and so do you. But if you are in Christ, he says that you are, in 1 Peter chapter 1, a partaker of the divine nature. That defies human logic and practical wisdom because our God is greater than all of those things. His grace is greater. His mercy is greater than all of those decisions and all those hardships that you have had. He is greater, and so we want to cling to him as Ruth is clinging to Naomi and the God of Naomi, Yahweh. But man, do you notice that the author of Ruth goes silent? She, the, the author of Ruth introduces dialogue in verse 8, dialogue, 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 Ruth says this in nothing. It's like putting that matzo ball out there where you're like, I love you to someone that you care about, and they're just like, thank you. Thank you for that. Or they're just quiet. And, and you're just like, I, I said I love you. Nothing in return. There's no feedback from that, from, from that. And you get this sense of either Naomi's overwhelmed, Naomi's uncomfortable, it's just awkward for her, because Ruth makes this incredibly de incredible declaration, and it just says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. I, I hope she didn't give her the silent treatment, because that is the worst. I mean, no one likes the silent treatment, especially when you're communicating something of this nature and magnitude. And so we get to the second scene of Act 1. Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem. Look at verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. I wonder if she was quiet the whole time. What a wonderful road trip. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women of Bethlehem said, is this Naomi? I wonder what Naomi looked like. It's been 10 years, and she's had some hard life. Husband, dead. Firstborn, lastborn, dead. No grandchildren. Can you imagine? I mean, put, put yourself in her shoes. Because we could beat up on Naomi, 
but let's not beat up on Naomi. She's had a hard go of it. There's lessons to be learned, but she's had a hard go of it. So she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And so what you have is you have these women excited to see Naomi. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, beautiful, and good, changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. She says, I have returned home empty, unfulfilled, bitter. And what Naomi is experiencing is she is able, and the women are able to see her pain and see that she is absorbed and consumed with the pain and the hardship that she has experienced. So much so that she cannot see, she's blind to even see or acknowledge who is right next to her. Ruth, the Moabitess. Did you note that in her complaint, again, this is something that you highlight, you underline, how many different times she says, don't call me. Call me Mara. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Multiple times, she's, her complaint is singular. She's unable to see or acknowledge that Ruth is right next to her. Uh, Naomi utters her complaint as though Ruth even though her words still, Ruth's words for us reading this story ring really loudly of Ruth's chesed and loyalty and mercy and compassion and commitment to Naomi and Yahweh, we are still hearing those words in our head as we've just read the story, but Naomi, she's just in kind of this tunnel, this cone of just, of pain, and she can't see or hear what, what's, what's around her. And I can't imagine for Ruth did not help but feel like the physical illustration of the Lord's affliction in Naomi's life. That she's like this walking, living, breathing human object lesson of, you want to see how bad my life is? Here's my daughter-in-law. Even the author of Ruth, look at verse 22. I didn't read it or I didn't highlight it. When it says Naomi returned, even the author says, and with her Ruth not just Ruth, we got to put on the tag, the Moabitess. Because again, don't forget kids, when Jewish dad was sharing this with his Jewish children, this is a Moabitess, sexually immoral, a seductress, an idolater. That's a Moabitess. And here's Ruth next to Naomi. So all you had to bring back with you was someone that might kind of put oil in the water of our country here. That's what you have standing next to you. And so, again, before we beat Naomi up by any means, is she absorbed with the pain? Yes. Is she self-absorbed? Yes. Such self-absorption in the midst of pain and affliction, I believe, is understandable. But it doesn't make it excusable. Pain hurts. Pain is hard, but pain causes us not to see that which is around us. In the deepest of distress, at just the right moment, we don't, she's, she's not seeing that Yahweh is bringing hope, even the faintest hint of hope, even the faintest hint of an option, of movement, of moving forward with, with one's life, a possibility turning into an opportunity. God is at work 
in this move back to Jerusalem to bless Naomi's life again. But naturally, Naomi doesn't see this move in mind. She just sees it as, I got to get back just home because I don't know what else to do. And the reason why is because, again, pain easily blinds a person from God's greater plan. And we might use the word pain, or you could use the word grief or loss or tragedy. But what it does is it blinds us from the small ways in which God may be working his plan out. It's hard to see the subtlety. Did you see the subtlety in verse 6? The subtlety of the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. It's hard for us to imagine true hunger. I've never lived in a time in my life where there was true hunger. My grandparents talked about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression and what they experienced of, of not having anything lined up on the shelf. And I know a couple years ago, we had a little scare and there was like, I, I, can't, I can't get toilet paper or I can't get, you know, my, my, my hamburger or whatever it may be. And it was like, we had a brief blip of time of where, of where we're like, but could, what if I don't? And I don't think any of us probably lost any weight during that time. I mean, it's just one of those things. We're not accustomed to what it means to be hungry and what hunger will drive you to do. And so when they've experienced famine and there's a a glimmer of hope that there's food back home, man, it, it may seem subtle to us, but it seemed to not be subtle to Naomi. She heard that. She heard that call. But as she's sitting in that pain, it's hard. There's the subtlety. In verse 22, at the very end, it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Ruth and Naomi just happened to show up at the right time when the barley harvest is about to take place. Later on in chapter 2, verse 3, I told you not to read ahead, but I can, so you can't. But in chapter 2, verse 3, what you begin to see is this phrase mentioned in chapter 2 in the life of Ruth and in the life of Naomi of, it just, and so it happened as if it was coincidence. It's not coincidence, it's providence. God is at work behind the scenes and you can't see it. He relieved the famine in the land and food is back. You thought you were just going to jump on the road back to Judah and back to Bethlehem, but little did you realize that your journey was going to get you there right on time for the barley harvest. God is taking care of you. You're going to just happen to wander into a man's field to be able to glean from the harvest just so happens, it's not coincidence, it's providence. God is providential in your life. He's watching over you and over us. So unfortunately, though, Naomi is blind to the evident presence of God and his subtleties, but also the presence of, New- of Ruth, who stands in an outright contradiction of her words. There's some theology here that's really good by Naomi of the sovereignty of God, and there's some theology here that is just way off. <laughs> Because she makes it not so much theology, but meology. And that's not a word, but you can use it. She makes it about her. Her faith is about her. Her life is about her. It's all about her. And you're missing the theology of God at work in the midst of this moment. And when she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord is against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. I'm not saying she didn't have hardship, but she's not back empty empty. She has Ruth, the Moabitess, the idolater, the seductress, but yet we're beginning to see that she's not really that person, is she? What Hesed Ruth 
has for Naomi. I said before, Ruth's faith defies uh, logic and practical wisdom. Chesed defies logic. And Chesed defies practical wisdom. Sometimes Chesed just doesn't make sense, but it's so good. Don't miss it. Rather than leave and go home, Ruth doesn't allow logic and practical wisdom to dictate. Instead, she commits herself to Naomi and to the Lord, the same God who is against them, quote unquote. The opposite of Naomi's logic is not illogical or emotional, but it's actually shown in Ruth's determined commitment. That's the opposite of Naomi's logic. And so for you, where you sit, see and don't be blind to the hesed demonstrated by God in your life. God pursues, God shows himself to be great, good, and faithful in the midst of all of this. But also don't miss the gospel of Jesus in this. And you're like, are you stretching, pastor, because you've got to bring Jesus in at the end of your sermon so that way Jesus gets attacked? No, 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 no. L- listen to this. Elimelech is a man of God, of the people of God, and yet he wanders from God into a land of idolatry. Have, have any of you who are a child of God, a person in the family of God, but yet you are drifting from the things of God, the Word of God, the presence of God, just because circumstances have changed in your life, and you're like, well, I'll find relief over there, as opposed to saying, this is the land that God has given us. This is what I know to be true. I'm going to remain steadfast to my Lord because he is steadfast to me. We also see the gospel specifically in the person of Ruth. The person of Ruth is born in the land of idolatry. Aren't we born into sin? She's born into the land of idolatry. She has all of these tags and definitions around her. Seductress, immoral, idolater. This is who she is, an object of God's wrath and judgment. And yet God pursues. Even in our sin, he demonstrates his grace, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his hesed. This is the beautiful picture of the story here in chapter 1 of Ruth is that the, the, the chesed of God is being demonstrated back to Ruth and her commitment to the Lord, that, that there's a woman in a distant land in the same way that we, if you will, we are, we are steeped into a kingdom of darkness, lost in our sin, and there is one who is pursuing us with his great love and faithfulness and loyalty to say to you, there is hope for you, there is life for you, there is salvation for you, and it's only found through the person of Christ and the gospel of Jesus because it's on the cross that God covers us with his, with our, with his grace. His grace covers our sin. So maybe right now you're in the midst of pain, or maybe right now you're in the midst of sin, distancing yourself from God. Maybe right now you hurt so you're blind to the truth or the subtleties of God at work in your life, and so you experience really a void. And what do we do when we have a void in our life? It's just natural. We want to fill the void with something or someone. We want to fill the void maybe with family activities. And I'm going to be busy, and I'm just going to be completely just overly devoted to my family to where my family is now my idol. Or maybe it's work, I get lost in my work, or maybe a social issue, or we escape in entertainment, or we escape in a bottle or a pill bottle, or we escape into some relationship that we might have that void 
filled when there's only one means by which that void is filled, and it's through a relationship with Christ. And the beautiful thing is that as you go through this book, is that there comes a point, <laughs> there comes a point where when you begin to hear about Ruth, she's just Ruth. She's just Ruth. Some of you, you may feel so distant from God, presence of God, the Word of God, because of something that you have maybe done or thought in the last week or year or decade. And for you, it is atrocious. But can I tell you, His grace is greater still. His grace is good. And you're no longer so-and-so, the Moabitess, so-and-so, the sinner. You are just so-and-so in Christ. If you would bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray. Main thing I want you to walk away with today is do not be blind to the, to the chesed that's being demonstrated to you by others and by Jesus. It may be subtle, so subtle that it doesn't even seem to push against the affliction or pain that you're going through. But even let the subtlety of God and his great loyalty and faithfulness move you. And so, in a moment, we're, we're, we're going to sing. And you're going to have a chance to, to respond. As I've mentioned before, to me, this is the most crucial part of our time this morning is we've looked at the Word, so therefore God has spoken through His Word. What will you say back? How will you respond to Him? Will you let your mind wander to lunch? Take every thought captive in this moment because you have a chance to do true business with the Lord. Maybe for some of you, it's a time right now where you go, Pastor, you have no idea how great an atrocity I have committed or how great uh, of a distance I have put myself between myself and, and God. I just want to remind you that he pursues you and demonstrates his grace and his faithfulness to you, his hesed. Maybe this morning you just need a chance just to cry out to God. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You've heard about him. You've grown up maybe even in church, but is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Have you experienced the hesed of Jesus, the loyalty and the faithfulness of Jesus? to save your soul from your sin so that you're no longer so-and-so the sinner, you are just so-and-so in Christ. If that's you today and you just want to know what more of that would look like, come and visit with me as we sing. Visit with me when we get finished. This is the most important conversation you can have. For others of you, I know for many of you, I know that of your relationship that you have with Christ, so can I, just, can I just encourage you to bring your feelings or your hurt to the cross of Jesus and to see Jesus right now, to see his loyalty and his faithfulness and his chesed, that you don't miss it, not just today, but any day, that you would see Christ and just how good he is. I'm not saying that your pain isn't real. I don't want to trivialize it. It's your pain. But his grace is greater still.
Father, I pray for your mercy and grace just to wash like a wave over every individual in this room, that they would know you are good and faithful and a God of chesed. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand? We're going to sing. Some of you may or may not know. It's an old hymn. It's a good one. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn of uh, here is love vast as the ocean. And as you sing this this morning, allow, again, those crashing waves of God's grace, love, and mercy just to crash all over you. If you would, would you stand? Would you sing with them? If you need to visit or pray with someone, I'll be right there. I would love to pray with you.